So this has been kind of a family session, and I have great collaborators, Sharon Stott and Aditya Bardia, so I feel like we're all kind of working on this together. And what I thought I would do is talk about a different aspect of circulating tumor cells and really focus very much on some early applications. And that's one of the challenges that we always have with these new technologies. They're really cool. Uh, they're kind of expensive. They're difficult. When do they actually start to have some benefit? So I thought I would run through that particular focus for this talk. I do have disclosures. I'm on the Scientific Advisory Board of Janssen, and I'm a co-founder of Torpedo Diagnostics, which is the biotech which is commercializing the CTC technology. So this is um, a picture of all the many types of liquid biopsies that we work on in the world today. Um, this is something from a review article that I wrote with Victor Valculescu, and he does CT DNA. I was doing CTC, so you'll notice that it's a, a perfectly balanced between the left side and the right side. But I will point out that what I'm going to talk about today is something that you can do with cells, with CTCs, that you cannot easily do with CTDNA, and that's look at RNA. Now, there are many ways you've heard from Shannon about looking at RNA and exosomes as well, but for the most part, if you're looking circulating tumor DNA, you're really looking at mutations. If you have whole cells, you can start to ask questions about the transcripts and what they express, and that's the focus of the talk today. So I'll talk a little bit about the technologies for scoring CTCs, and then I'm going to rapidly go through four different examples and four different disease types, in liver cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and melanoma, and just give you a flavor of what, the, what we think we can do and what the future hopefully will look like. So you've seen bits of this chip from Shannon's talk already. This is a chip that was developed in Mamatona's lab. The idea is that you take a tube of blood, and instead of trying to enrich tumor cells, you deplete white blood cells. All of our tumors may be different if we have cancer, but all of our white blood cells are exactly the same. So it's much easier to deplete them. The antibodies are really, really good, and you can combine antibodies against white blood cells with magnetic particles. They first go through this part of the chip, which is hydrodynamic sorting, so all the platelets in the red blood cells are depleted. And then they go through this magical part of the chip. This is actually the one that's the coolest. But these are kind of wiggling channels with particular dimensions. And what they do is that they force the cells into the center of the channel. If you have a big gamish of cells and you apply a magnet, cells crash into each other in all directions. If they're traveling down a channel in single row, in single file, then one little magnetic bead is enough to move them to the right or move them to the left as they travel through a magnetic device. And that's the kind of key to this purification, which is 10 to the 4, 10 to the 5 purification of cells from the blood. And then finally, here you have the magnetic field, and you can separate white blood cells from CTCs. The other key piece of this is that because we tag the white blood cells, they kind of get sludgy and yucky and gross. The CTCs are untouched. And it turns out the less you do to CTCs, the more they stay viable, the more the RNA within them is intact, and then the more you can study them as well. So this is the chip in all its, in all its glory. As you've heard from Shannon, this is made by what was once called Sony Blu-ray. They gave us a particular discount because they don't make DVDs anymore. Uh, but it is round, 
And if you kind of close your ears, you can hear your favorite music. It, it doesn't spin, but we're going to give them a prize if they can play Miles Davis at the same time as you run the chip. But you can see in this chip here that the blood comes in here. This is the cell sorting. This is the inertial focusing. This is the magnet. And this is what it looks like. This is just two plates of plastic that are basically molded to make these channels. And then the plates are glued together. This is the machine. Um, it's basically automated at this point. The blood goes in here, buffer goes in here, the chip goes in the center, and out come the CTCs, the red cell waste, and the white cell waste. At this point, it takes about one hour for us to process about 10 mils of blood. It's pretty much automated. It takes about two days for someone to learn and be able to, to, to be trained on how to work this. And um, again, we can now work through about up to 10, 30 mils of blood. And the next generation, the next advance in Mehmet's lab is to try to make this higher throughput with larger amounts of blood that you can process in this way. So this is all cool. It's really beautiful. It's a phenomenal collaboration. If you can work with engineers, I recommend it. Sometimes they speak in equations that you can't understand. But if you can get past that, then it's actually fun. So this is the chip. And this is what it looks like. And this is the product. So the product is gorgeous. Um, what um, Shannon has not focused on, but Shannon is actually an expert in imaging as well. And this is multispectral imaging. You can stain from multiple pictures, multiple colors with multiple proteins. So you can look with a fluorescent microscope at what are the tumor cells, are they dividing, what do they express? And yes, it can take eight hours to scan a slide. And in fact, we have some very expensive microscopes in the lab that basically scan these images for long periods of time. So you can learn a lot about this and some of the work that Shannon has done, particularly in terms of signal thresholding and manual scoring. It's a whole art form to decide what's a tumor cell, what's a blood cell, what's kind of garbage, and what do you not know? So that's the challenge, if you will, that the analysis of what comes out of the chip is really hard and kind of a labor of love. And that's why we decided to turn to RNA, because clearly if you can quantify RNA with a molecular tool, it's much quicker, it's more reliable, and more sensitive. This is work from David Miyamoto when he was in the lab. We can pick individual CTCs, do single cell RNA sequencing, and get you know, 3 million reads, 30, sometimes 10 million reads of RNA from a cell. So the cells are intact, and it raises the question, of maybe if you enrich for these CTCs, you can actually then interrogate the RNA instead of having to stain the cell, and you may have a much, much better assay. So this is the idea as we applied it. You take the blood, you put it through the chip, and then you just break up all the cells, make RNA, do a whole transcriptome amplification, and then go through what's called, in this particular case, droplet PCR. So every little molecule is encased in a lipid droplet. If there's a molecule of interest, an RNA of interest, the droplet turns green. If there isn't, it stays an empty droplet. So every molecule of RNA gives you a positive signal. It's automated, it's high throughput, it's actually not as expensive as, as looking through a microscope for that period of time. So the idea was to have a basically digital rather than analog type of readout for CTCs. On top of that, RNA, if you have it intact, is incredibly specific. So this is, for example, the RNA from a liver cell. This is the RNA for a blood cell looking at particular transcripts that are present in the liver. And to, to drive this home, imagine albumin. Albumin is a protein. It's the most abundant protein in your blood. It's only, only made in the liver. So if there's a cell in your blood 
that has albumin RNA, it comes from your liver. It shouldn't be in your blood. In fact, the liver, and I'll show you why we studied liver so particularly, the liver makes a whole bunch of enzymes that are not made in other, any other tissue in your body. So if you find a cell in the blood that has RNA for these enzymes, it comes from the liver. The second point is the signal amplification that you get. Basically, one cell can give you 100 or 200 droplets. So instead of looking for that one cell and trying to say, is it green, is it red, you know, how do I threshold that image, you can get 100 droplets for one gene. If you look at 10 genes, you could potentially get 1,000 droplets. So you can see the signal amplification that you get as well. And then finally, the way that we've adapted this with whole transcriptome amplification, we can look at multiple, multiple transcripts. And the way that we do it, we maintain the, the ratio of these transcripts to each other. So you've heard a lot about tumor heterogeneity here. So one gene is not enough. You need to look at 10 or 15 different transcripts to capture the heterogeneity of a cancer. And if you do a very gentle whole transcriptome amplification first, and then a limited number of droplet PCRs, you maintain the heterogeneity among the different transcripts. So let me tell you a couple stories. And the first one is a liver cancer story. And this was a collaboration between a graduate student in the lab, Mark Kalinich, and a GI fellow, Irun Ban, in David Ting's lab. And this was, can we look at liver cancer since I just told you how specific the genes are in liver? So this is the story for liver cancer. It's really almost a poster child for early cancer detection. If you don't have cirrhosis, if your liver is fine, the chance of you developing liver cancer is vanishingly low. If you have cirrhosis because of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, alcoholic-induced or obesity-induced cirrhosis, you have anywhere from 0.5 to 8% per year chance of developing liver cancer. So you can clearly see that 80 to 90% of liver cancers occur in predisposed individuals who have a high risk of developing the cancer. If you had a test that you could monitor at frequent intervals, this would be the ideal population in whom to test early detection of cancer. And there's 200 million individuals in the world who have liver cirrhosis. Very, very common, obviously, in, in Asian countries, China, Japan, Korea as well. So this is the assay that was developed. And what you can see, we first tested healthy individuals. So 26 healthy individuals, we don't see much signal. Then we got a little more courageous, and we went to Ray Chung's hepatology clinic with Irun Ban, and we looked at all the patients who have cirrhosis, who are coming every year for a liver ultrasound and alpha fetoprotein measurement. And you can see they also don't have much signal. When we look at patients newly diagnosed with untreated, with untreated HCC, we see quite some signal. As they're being treated, we see less. And then when patients actually had surgery or embolization and the tumor was taken out, we're back to background. So we have a linear, or not linear, but we have a clear signal-to-noise uh, pattern. You can see the ROC curves here for this particular assay. You can also monitor patients being treated. So these two patients, in black is the alpha fetoprotein protein marker, in red is the CTC. This patient did not respond, both markers are going up. This patient responded to resection, but then it recurred, and you can see the markers coming down and going up again. And then there's actually 20 to 25% of patients with liver cancer who don't have an AFP signal. 
In fact, the tumor does not make AFP, and you can see there's no AFP signal in these two cases. In both of those cases, we could see signal with the CTC uh, looking at RNA, and we could see response in both of these cases. So emboldened by that, we decided to look at early detection of liver cancer in high-risk patients and comparing alpha-fetoprotein above a certain threshold of 100 with the CTC score. And what I can tell you to kind of cut to the chase is that we had 10 patients out of 15 newly diagnosed liver cancer in whom we had signal. In those, in five, both the alpha-fetoprotein and the CTC were positive. In four, only the CTCs were positive, and in one, only the AFP was positive. So you can see you have two orthogonal markers which together would potentially be better than either one alone. Where this is going is that this biotech company, Torpedo, is now trying to launch a major trial in Taiwan looking at patients who are being monitored because they have liver cirrhosis and doing alpha-fetoprotein at the same time as CTCs. If you have a positive score, or if your score increases over time, then you go straight to MRI, and then the MRI would dictate the following treatment. If this can, can work in Taiwan, the hope is that this could set a new standard for how we should be uh, screening patients for liver cancer in the US as well as across the globe. So let me move on to a second story, and this um, is from my collaborator, Aditya Vardia, who spoke so eloquently just a few minutes ago and Tanya Kwan, a former postdoc in the lab. And here we're gonna talk about estrogen receptor signaling within CTCs. So this is the picture from Aditya, which is basically the headache of all the breast oncologists. There are too many treatments, and it's not clear who do you give, what do you give to whom, because you can't biopsy things all the time. You don't know what to do. Once you've had first or second line treatment, what are the choices that you should apply? You can see here again, that if we look at breast-specific markers, and the breast is an organ which has specific RNAs which are not present in the blood. So we're not trying to find breast cancer within a normal breast. We're trying to find a breast cell within the blood. So it's not that hard. And you can see, again, the signal is very clean in terms of breast transcripts within the blood. So the first thing that we did was to recapitulate a kind of legendary study done by Dan Hayes and Massimo Cristofanili that CTCs at baseline are predictive of outcome. And in fact, in the studies of, Ma of Massimo and Dan, they were primarily staining of cells, primarily patients treated with chemotherapy. This is both chemotherapy and hormonal therapy. And again, here we have a high throughput digital assay. If you have a low CTC score at baseline, this is your overall survival. If you have a high CT score at baseline, this is your overall survival. So it's clearly prognostic of outcome in these patients. Now what happens if you follow the treatment at, after three to four weeks of treatment, what you can see is more information. So if your CTCs were low and they go away, you're on the green curve, that's the best possible outcome. If your CTCs were high and they don't change, you're on the red curve, that's the worst possible outcome and everything in between. So CTCs as quantified digitally are quite a powerful measure to see how to predict how a treatment's gonna do and how you're doing early on in the treatment. But this was the most interesting thing that we found. We looked at patients who didn't do well. So this is patients who, who had progression within 12 months in yellow, you can see those, and who didn't do well. And when we looked at their RNA signatures, there was a red box. 
The red box, these are all the markers that we look at, all the genes, and there were these six genes that were red in those that did badly. And when we look at what that was, these were markers of persistent estrogen signaling. So what's happening now is that we can take circling tumor cells from the blood of a woman being treated for breast cancer and ask, within those cells in the blood, has estrogen signaling been turned off or not? So estrogen may still be driving proliferation, but if you're giving the wrong drug, it's still driving proliferation and estrogen signaling is still on. And if you start looking at that, this is what we call the RS score of this resistance signature. Again, if you look at overall survival or time to progression, you can see that at three to four weeks after initiation of treatment, you can predict how someone is going to do based on this RS score. Now, there's another very famous score uh, that uh, you heard from Aditya as well, which is that of presence of estrogen receptor mutations. These are activating mutations in ESR1. We can also test those in CTCs, and they're also very predictive of outcome. The interesting thing here is this Venn diagram. So we look at who are the women who did not do well on second or third line hormonal therapy. And you can see that six of them had estrogen receptor mutations. 13 of them had persistent ER signaling. The overlap is only three. So what that tells us is that yes, estrogen receptor mutations are a major resistance mechanism to anti-estrogen drugs, but there are other mechanisms out there that will continue to stimulate the cell through estrogen, but are not caused by estrogen receptor mutations. And the big question now, what are those? Are those accessory factors? Are they FOXA1 expression? Are there other mechanisms that could be targeted therapeutically? The last thing I want to show you is something that was done by Aditya and Laura Spring, which was to see how far we can push this kind of signature to sensitivity in breast cancer. You've heard a little bit about neoadjuvant treatment of breast cancer. Can we see a signal? This is a big challenge, including with CTDNA. Nick Turner has done a lot of that work as well. And the question is, do we see a signal in the blood in women who have an aggressive primary tumor they're going to get six months of neoadjuvant treatment, and we're not going to know if it works for six months. And if it's not working, they should be doing something else. If it is working, you should continue. How quickly can we get a signature that something's working? And again, this is relatively early work, but what you can see is the pretreatment signature for those who, who, who had, they had minimal residual disease, so they did really, really well. They didn't do so well with a neoadjuvant treatment. There's no difference at pretreatment baseline. Cycle one, not so good. Cycle two, not so great. But by cycle three, you can start seeing a difference. So by three months of neoadjuvant treatment, women who are going to do well and have no tumor left after neoadjuvant treatment have a much lower CTC signature than those who are going to have something left after surgery. This is way, way too early to do anything about it, but again, it's our first attempt at pushing the envelope, if you will, to see how close we can get to early, early detection here. So let me move on to my third tumor of choice, which is prostate cancer. And here, this is work done by Rick Lee, a medical oncologist, and David Miyamoto. And I had to grab David Miyamoto's picture from the STO conference. So I think he spoke last year, and you can see the emblem of STO right behind him here. So he gave you this talk already, and I'm going to update you on the work that he's done. And David now has his own laboratory at MGH in radiation oncology. 
So the challenge, as you know, in prostate cancer is that um, at the time that you have metastatic disease, almost everybody tends to respond to um, anti-androgen therapies, and then eventually it recurs, and then it's not clear what to do. So you have that same challenge of how do you adjust medications when everybody responds up front. Although it turns out not everybody responds for the same duration of time. Some people have great responses, some people not so much. So here's what we can do with CTCs. Again, you can see the signatures are really, really clean looking at CTCs in prostate cancer patients versus blood. And that's because, again, the prostate is a very specific tissue. It's often androgen-driven. There are a lot of transcripts that are only present in the prostate. You take out the prostate, there's no prostate tissue left. There should not be cells in the blood that express prostate markers. So this was the first result that David obtained with, again, the prospective cohort of about 27 patients. This is at baseline. So if at baseline you have CTCs above a certain threshold, you're going to do poorly compared to if you don't. So again, CTCs are predictive at baseline. But not just the total CTC score. It turns out that there's a particular gene, HOXB13, which is very interesting. HOXB13 is a cofactor for the antigen receptor. In fact, it's mutated in the germline of very rare families with hereditary prostate cancer. And it often is overexpressed in more aggressive forms of prostate cancer. And what you can see with high HOXB13 is you don't respond very well for a long time to, um, in this case, abiraterone therapy. Whereas if your HOXB13 is low, you respond for a much better time, length of time to abiraterone. So you already identify a high-risk population that's not going to do as well with single-agent drug and maybe should, should be open to other combinations or experimental therapies. The other um, marker, which is very much in the field, is called ARV7. It's an abnormal splice variant of the antigen receptor itself, and it's been shown by a group at Hopkins to be highly correlative with an, with an adverse outcome, particularly with third or fourth line therapy. Here the assay is so sensitive that we can see it in first line recurrence. And again, ARV7, if you can detect it, is a bad outcome compared to if you don't have it. And if you look at these together, you can see now we're starting to combine markers here. So of the six patients who, are, uh, who, who did badly, so in red you can see patients who basically had early recurrence on abiraterone, we pick up all six of them with high expression of OXB13, but we also have a number of false positives who are going to do okay. ARV7 only picks up two of the six who are going to do badly, but the predictive value, the positive predictive value is 100%. So again, you can see ARV7 captures a smaller number of patients, but is a very, very bad marker. HOXB13 captures pretty much everybody, but not everybody's gonna do as badly as, as others. So again, you're looking at two particular markers to apply, particularly now as additional hormonal therapies and other therapies become available in prostate cancer. And again, we tried to see how far can we push this in terms of early detection. So this was um, collaborative work with the urology department at MGH and, 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 and Doug Dow in particular, and these are patients who had localized prostate cancer. They were going to have surgery, and they had a CTC measurement before surgery. And then we looked at the outcome. And it turned out that among those patients, six of them 
turned out to have pelvic lymph node involvement or uh, periprostatic invasion into the, sem into the um, seminal vesicles. And of those, we could basically pick up three of them by CTCs. And everybody who had positive CTCs before surgery turned out to have lymph node involvement or seminal vesicle involvement. So again, here we're comparing different markers. This is the D'Amico score and this is the CTC score. And you can see again, it's early days, but we're adding a novel type of diagnostic to identify risk, particularly bad risk before surgery. So the last application that I want to touch on is in melanoma. And this is the work of Shin Hong, a postdoc in the lab, and Ryan Sullivan, one of our clinicians um, and leaders in our melanoma program. Now, melanoma is particularly interesting as well for a number of reasons. They're very effective therapies. It's also traditionally been a very difficult uh, tumor to study because it's very, very heterogeneous. So if you look at melanoma, it's kind of a neural crest-derived tumor, so it should express a lot of markers that are not present in the blood, but it's very, very heterogeneous. So in fact, we need almost 20 different genes to be able to monitor melanoma. But if you look at all of these markers, and basically what Shin was able to develop was a bunch of markers that are neural crest, a number that are carcinotestis, others that are kind of generic cancer-related transcripts, 19 markers, again, you can see how well he does differentiating melanoma from normal blood. Again, you can see that it's very, very sensitive. The curves look, and RC curves look good. And now we can see, can we monitor, can we measure the progress of melanoma on treatment? So what you're looking at here is the control. This is a patient with BRAF-positive mutant melanoma treated with a BRAF inhibitor, and you can see within two weeks, within four weeks, the, the counts drop to absolutely nothing. And then as the tumor recurs, it starts to come up again. This is a patient who's BRAF negative, is given chemotherapy, which unfortunately in this case was not effective, and you can see the number of CTCs rising along with the disease as well. So it works for the bona fide treatments. What happens with immunotherapy? And we see a very similar pattern. So this is a, uh, a PD-1 inhibitor, this is um, ipilimumab, a CTLA-4 inhibitor. You can see patients who respond, you can see a drop in CTCs within weeks. Patients who don't respond, you see a rise in the CTC signal as well. So if we now apply this marker across the entire cohort of about uh, 49 patients, when we look at baseline of untreated patients with new melanoma who are about to receive their first checkpoint inhibitor, we see absolutely no predictive value of the tumor burden itself. So this is kind of what you would expect for immunotherapy. It doesn't matter how much tumor you have. It's really not predictive. If you look at six to seven weeks on treatment, then you see a huge difference. So if you dropped your CTC signal, you can see the overall survival and the disease-free survival is tremendously different. If you drop the counts, you do well. If you don't, then you don't do so well. And this is, again, a timing where six to seven weeks is often relatively early for clinical metrics. Often you have to wait three to four to five months, and you can see when you treat these patients that one CAT scan lesion gets better, one gets worse. It's a long period of time to monitor patients so we're hoping that this would be helpful as a relatively early marker of whether the disease is going the right way or not based on immunotherapy. 
So in summary then, I've kind of given you four different vignettes and four different diseases, and all they have in common is that we're looking at invasive cells in the blood. We're not looking at the cells microscopically, we're just looking at their RNA from their tumor of origin, from their tissue of origin. And either we're typing, where does the tumor come from, and is it getting better or not in terms of tumor burden, or we're asking very specific questions about signaling, whether it's the estrogen or the progesterone or the antigen receptor. So in liver cancer, where we hope this is going, is a large clinical trial for early detection of liver cancer in high-risk populations with cirrhosis. In breast cancer, the most exciting finding is that we can monitor estrogen receptor signaling on therapy. And within three weeks of adding a new drug, we can tell or we hope we can tell, have we shut off the estrogen receptor or not? And we hope that that would be helpful for drug development. In prostate cancer, the main application that we would see is to identify patients who have just recurred. So they've had their prostatectomy or radiation, they've had their Lupron, and they're now recurring with disease. They're gonna go on first-line um, anti-androgen therapy. Are they likely to do really well and that's all they should get for now? Or are they at higher risk because they have ARV7, because they have HOXB13, and they should go into some kind of combination to try to have a better long-term outcome? So again, it's a risk stratification strategy for prostate cancer. Again, in melanoma, there's a lot of excitement about how do you predict response, what should be the treatment in melanoma. The best thing that we would propose is that it's a relatively reliable and early marker of response to immunotherapy. And again, immunotherapy for melanoma is particularly complicated because there are multiple options. You don't really know what you're treating. You can't really measure the antigens very easily. So there's a lot of interest now in seeing, can we actually sequence melanoma cells in the blood and see what do they still express um, at the protein level or at the RNA level. But using this kind of assay, we can at least measure early response to immunotherapy. And lastly, as you've heard throughout this morning, this is very much team science. So I co-direct this lab with Shyamalan Maheswaran, who's my partner in crime. And I've shown you in red, um, Shin did the work on melanoma. Mark Kalinish did the work on liver cancer together with Irun Ban, Tanya Kwan on breast cancer, and Eric Zhang did the work on prostate cancer together with D David Miyamoto, who has his own lab now. We've had amazing clinical collaborators. Lisha Sequis is our overall clinical director and runs our lung program. Aditya and Laura Spring are our breast collaborators. Ray Chung um, and Andrew Zhu are our liver collaborators. Rick Lee for prostate and Ryan Sullivan for melanoma. And again, all of this has been possible through a phenomenal collaboration with our bioengineering team with Mehmet Toner, Ravi Kapoor, Rebecca Sandlin, and Shannon Stott. Thank you very much. Daniel, one of the potential uses of the uh, RNA mon monitor would be early detection of uh, recurrence of tumor in prostate patients. Uh, how does it compare with PSA? Is it, is it something that complements PSA, or do you see it as a potential way of, of early detection? I, th I think in general, whenever you've had a resection and there's a very specific tra specific signal that you could me measure, CTCs would be fantastic for early recurrence, particularly if there's something that you're gonna do about it. 
Um, PSA, for better or for worse, is very, very good. So the bigger challenge for PSA is before you have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, your PSA is high, do you have cancer or not? Once the prostate is taken out, if the PSA comes back, that's a very, very sensitive marker. So we haven't looked at RNA versus PSA because PSA is so good in that setting. But for the, for the uh, first diagnosis, is it useful for telling you that you've got prostate cancer versus just an elevated PSA due to inflammation or, or prostatitis or whatever? I think it, that, would be the, that would be really the, 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 the holy grail that we'd like to go for. And very, very often what we see are patients who have a relatively high PSA. They've had multiple biopsies and the PSA is just staying there. Um, in that kind of setting, if you have cells in the blood, then it means something. And you can also do this over time. So one of the trials that David Miyamoto is now setting up is to try to follow patients longitudinally. So just like you look for the PSA doubling time, you can look for the CTC doubling or increasing time to identify those at high risk. The one issue that we see is that, at least with the current technology that we now have, if your CTC signal is floridly positive, then chances are your prostate cancer is fairly invasive. And the question then is, are these patients who should have medical therapy before prostatectomy? Should they have radiation instead of that? The worst possible thing is that you have a prostatectomy, you have seminal vesicle involvement or lymph node involvement, and then you have to have radiation on top of that. So again, Avoiding double treatment because you didn't know what the stage was is going to be important. So the yes, please. We've done a lot of work in lung cancer. Um, initially, we had looked primarily. The whole reason we got into this business was actually finding EGFR mutations in lung cancer, so those we can do as well. Most of the work in most of the mutation work at this point is most easily done with plasma DNA. So if you're looking for EGFR, um, if you're looking for most point mutations, they're much, much more easily done with ctDNA. We are looking at translocations, so EML4-ALK or our ROS translocations you can pick up at the RNA level, and that's something that you can do with CTCs. And then one of the most interesting things that happens, particularly with EGFR mutant lung cancer, is that sometimes they transform to a small cell histology. And that doesn't necessarily follow with mutations or other things to monitor easily, but you can see them with CTCs. So our, col our collaborators, Anna Farago um, and Nick Dyson and um, postdoc Ben, basically have succeeded in culturing small cell, not only identifying, but also culturing small cell lung cancer from the blood of patients with small cell lung cancer, uh, getting them to grow in mice and then treating them with drugs and looking at the correlation between the explant in the mouse versus the patient. So Daniel, in uh, most treatment-related things, you mutate away and for example, you lose certain expression. Does it ever happen that a, if you were following a cancer using CTCs, that the cancer would escape because it stopped kicking off CTCs, but then continued to grow? So, I mean, cancers are awfully smart, and they'll, they'll change their expression patterns, they'll change their mutations. Um, a cancer that has stopped being metastatic is one that's curable. So I would argue that that's the one thing that you, you can kind of put your hand on. 
Um, but I would say that you see all kinds of strange things. And with Aditya, for example, we've seen patients for whom we had CTCs that had lost expression of the estrogen receptor. We culture them in vitro and they don't express the estrogen receptor. We put them back in a mouse and they regain expression of the estrogen receptor. And it gives you a sense of the plasticity of these tumor cells. And the more we look at these cultures of CTCs, the more we find that there's some that are more proliferative, that there's some that are more resistant, that they can switch from one fate to another. And I think we're now in this weird world where we have so many tools at our disposal in treating patients, that every time we do something else to the patient, we impose an evolutionary pressure on the tumor, which changes. And for that reason, I think we're talking about relatively frequent sampling being the only way that you can keep ahead. Ben, is the chip available now commercially? We want to throw out a cell So the, the chip developed, so the, the history of this chip, you saw a little bit of that from Shannon, was initially uh, funded by NIH and then by Stand Up to Cancer and then by a big grant from Johnson & Johnson. And the goal had been that cell search would be retired and that this would be the second generation um, chip. J&J uh, decided to get out of the diagnostics business, which is where this uh, biotech company Torpedo was derived from. So at this point, Torpedo is making the chips. They're looking very much to do these trials, um, particularly now in Taiwan. But the hope is that they're going to make this for research use as well and make these, avail make these broadly available as well. The technology at this point is very robust in that, again, the chips... There's no chemistry on the chip. They're all just kind of channels. So the disk can be made. The machines are automated. So this is really now ready for dissemination. And again, this is more of a financial marketing um, strategy for the company to make these available. Thank you very much. <laughs>